Welcome to the Civil War Center podcast. Learn about the battles, events, and people that shaped the turning point in American history. I'm your host, Andrew Lucian. Alright everyone, so today we are joined by a familiar guest, Dan Masters. You may remember him from an episode we did on Stones River a while back. Today we are starting a brand new series on the war in the West. So we will be going through systematically the entire Civil War in the West from start to finish. Today we will be laying out the background to the war in the West and setting up the conflict out there. Um, And just for those of you who don't know Dan, Dan is an award-winning author He's been actively engaged in Civil War research for the past 20 years. His Civil War knowledge is unbelievable. He has a focus on Ohio infantry regiments. He's documented thousands of letters. Um, He founded the Columbian Arsenal Press in 2017 with the mission of ensuring that these incredible accounts were made available to a wider audience. So Dan is amazing. We're going to be sitting down going through the war in the West So without further ado, we will kick it off, and I hope you enjoy this episode that's going to set the stage for the war in the West. All right, so here we are starting a a new series, something we haven't done on the Civil War Center podcast before. Uh, We're going to be doing a series of episodes with Dan Masters, a great author, phenomenal website, your blog that you have, uh, great books. Uh, and then our listeners may remember the episode we did on Stones River together. Um, and we realized talking that we both have a love for the war in the West. Uh, so we said, why not do a series on the war in the West? Uh, so we are teaming up again. Uh, and we're going to start with the background on the war in the West, the Mississippi and the border states. Uh, thanks for joining us again, Dan. How are you doing? Oh, great. My pleasure. My my apologies. You're probably going to hear my sump pump running uh, fairly frequently tonight. We've had about, oh, I don't know, we got two inches of rain here a couple days ago, and we got another inch today. So the the, the poor ground outside is pretty saturated, but oh, uh, hopefully it won't be too distracting. Nope, no, that's okay. I I, I get it. Uh, we, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a professional studio to do this in, so I get it. Life happens. Our My puppy's running around, so who knows? She might make some noise, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's all good. We'll, we'll get through the history. Um, so yeah, we'll, we got a, a lot we can talk about today. Um, obviously the Mississippi river is a crucial, crucial part of the war in the West. Uh, the border States are very important specifically to, to Mr. Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Um, but the war in the West is something not many people know a ton about. Do you want to tell us a bit maybe about how you got interested in the war in the West before we, we jump sure. Uh, for me, it was uh, I, I kind of fell into it in a in a family sort of way, um, you know, doing a genealogy on my uh, ancestors a number of years ago, uh, discovered that uh, all my direct ancestors served in the Western theater. The three of them served in the Army of the Cumberland and one of them served in the 23rd Army Corps uh, pretty late in the war. Um, but he served in Tennessee and then went to North Carolina. So, um, you know, naturally my, my, my family interest drew me to, you know, the war in Tennessee and, uh, the Western theater. And, uh, you know, the more I've learned, the more I've just, uh, uh, grown to appreciate and enjoy the study. Uh, it's a fascinating theater of war. Um, certainly the, uh, it's, 
you know, when you look at the, the Civil War in the East, it's largely about, you know, this hundred mile stretch between Richmond and Washington and the armies just kind of go back and forth over, you know, a lot of the same territory. And the Western theater is, is vast. Um, the, the sheer distances involved with, you know, moving uh, the Union armies from what essentially was the Ohio River, which was the border between, uh, you know, the free states and the slave states uh, in the West, uh, uh, to move those armies south. I mean, we're talking moving hundreds of miles over um, not terribly improved roads, a relatively uh, a new railroad network and not, not a very expansive one. Uh, the logistics challenges, I think, as we talk about the Western theater, uh, logistics are always important in war. But I think in the Western theater, logistics trump about everything, um, largely because the, the, the distances that had to be covered were, were just so vast. Uh, and the means for uh, uh, you know, transiting those miles were rather limited. I mean, you were essentially you had you know, steamboat traffic on the, on the rivers. Um, you could go where the railroad lines were, but there weren't very many of them uh, in this particular part of the Confederacy. There was, you know, maybe a half dozen major lines. And then you had the, the, the Southern Road Network, which was uh, by and large unimproved as in they, you know, they hadn't, uh, you know, put stone down on the pikes. Most of them were mud or dirt and mud roads and uh, certainly not good for all weather travels. So. You know, as we explore the Western theater, the one thing for the listeners to keep in mind is the the overarching importance of logistics. Mm -hmm. And logistically, I think you, you mentioned railroads, um, rivers are going to be another big uh, logistical, geographical uh, center of attention. Uh, and I like how you mentioned that the war in the East really focuses on this hundred mile stretch between Richmond and Virginia, uh, between Richmond and Washington, uh, because the fighting's so different in the East, right? Like what they're what they're focused on, um, they're much more focused in the East. I feel like on occupation, whereas in the West, Grant and Sherman uh, are going to have to learn this strategy of kind of capture and move on. Uh, mm -hmm. They're not going to focus on holding. Uh, a city like Richmond, uh, which like McClellan and Burnside and Hooker were so focused on, uh, they're they're really much more focused on taking something and then moving on, um, which possibly is probably why they're honestly much more successful out there, uh, as well as the talent. I mean, the talent they have out west for the Union Army really is going to rise up later on, but the talent out there is very impressive. Um, as yeah, well. one wonders not being in uh, so much the national spotlight. Uh, you know, the generals like like Sherman and Grant had a chance to, uh, shall we say, make a few mistakes early in the war mm -hmm. without it proving fatal to their careers. I mean, uh, uh, a, a Shiloh-like um, a battle in the East probably would have ended Grant's career. Um, but out West, I mean, he was... Uh, they ultimately, the Union Army ultimately won the battle, but there was a lot of criticism of Grant for how that first day was conducted. And, um, and, you know, Halleck, when he arrived, shelved him for a period of time, he made, made him second in command, but uh, Grant felt very much like he was, uh, he was shelved. And um, in part, the, the Western theater, I, I won't say it's the forgotten theater. I mean, there's certainly a, an abundance of literature 
that has come out in the last 50 or so years about the Western theater. Um, but it isn't quite the, uh, oh, the, the, the pressures are different. Um, you, you, you generally don't have the administration breathing down your neck as much as let's say, you know, Joseph Hooker did or McClellan certainly did. Uh, and having a bit of distance gave these generals a chance to, uh, you know, to grow. I mean, that part of the process of any, any soldier learning the art of war is, is there, they're going to make some mistakes along the way. And, uh, you know, mistakes in the East were often, you know, punished by being sent out to the Western theater. Um, whereas mistakes in the West were, were, unless they were truly fatal, were, I'll say, more or less uh, overlooked or, or, or not given quite so much uh, uh, prominence as in the East. Yeah, for sure. And we'll see Burnside sent out, uh, out West later on as well. Uh, so and it went both ways. I mean, you had, you know, generals, you know, moving west to east uh, fairly early in the war uh, with pretty mixed success. Uh, John Pope, you know, probably the best example. Uh, uh, Pope had, had gathered a, a very solid reputation uh, for his actions around uh, capturing New Madrid and Island Number 10. Uh, in the spring of 1862, and then, you know, uh, serving with Halleck's army at Corinth, uh, and went east, uh, I say, in June or July of 1862 with uh, uh, quite a reputation for success behind him. And, and we saw how, how quickly that went went to ashes uh, in the east. Uh, Franz Siegel was another one um, uh, who had, had served in the Western Theater, been out in Missouri, fought at Pea Ridge, um, went back east in 1862, and his his... Uh, combat record in the East was uh, decidedly mixed uh, and more on the bad side than the good. So. Right. And Pope has that great quote. I come from the West where we only see the backsides of our enemies and then and proceeds to get routed at <laughs> pretty bad at second bull run. So. Well, uh, yeah. Lee's army saw plenty of Pope's army's backsides in the summer of 1852. <laughs> well, you know, when you have your headquarters in the saddle, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As I said, and it's interesting too. I mean, you have generals that, that, um, that generally in units that, that do not appear to do so well in the East that transfer out West and seem to do quite well for themselves. Right. Um, you know, Burnside um, is one example. I don't know that his Knoxville campaign is a, a masterpiece of, of the military art, but it was far more successful than Fredericksburg. Um, right. In comparison, uh, the 11th much and 12th much. Corps, uh, the 12th Corps had fought pretty well in the East, but the, the 11th Corps certainly had a, a, a poor reputation in the Army of the Potomac. They come out West in you know, fall of 63 and turn out quite well, <laughs> all things considered. So, yeah, it's kind of an interesting uh, dynamic. Um, you know, we see soldiers and armies moving from one, one army to the other to see how they do. Yeah, Hooker's going to fare much better at Chattanooga than he's going to yes. fare at so. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and generally during the Atlanta campaign, does, uh, his, his 20th Army Corps fights magnificently. And uh, the soldiers love him. Uh, Sherman doesn't care much for him, but uh, 
you know, the, the men that, that are serving under him by and large uh, come to respect Hooker quite a bit. So, yeah, it is almost this common theme of, you know, failure in the East, success in the West. Right. And, and so, like I mentioned, we're going to have a big focus on rivers and geography different out West. And obviously on April 12th of 1861, Fort Sumter is fired upon and the Civil War begins, right? So that's kind of where, I guess, for all intents and purposes, we need to pick up for this show since we're talking about the war in the West and not the, the buildup to the Civil War because mm-hmm. you can talk about that since the founding of the country. So uh, I want to talk a bit about the Mississippi and, and just how crucial it was to these Western states and, and to the Union. Uh, I, I did some research. I'm, I'm borrowing genuine or generously if in, listeners are interested um, from the Civil War in the West, Victory and Defeat from the Appalachians to the Mississippi by Earl Hess, which is a great book. Um, and then the Battle Cry of Freedom, which is a classic. So I'll put the link to those in case listeners are interested. But in 1859 to 1860, over 2 million tons of goods were shipped to New Orleans from the Mississippi, which amounts to almost $3 million in property. Uh, so the Mississippi is a cultural and economic uh, just icon to the to the people out west. Is that correct, Dan? Yeah, yeah. It it was the the primary avenue of commerce from the the, the midwestern states uh, with the rest of the country. It's important to remember. Um, you know, we'll use Ohio as a good example since you and I are both Buckeyes. Um, there was a a system of canals built in Ohio in the 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s. And most of those canals were meant to direct traffic south to the Ohio River. And why did it go south to the Ohio River? Because the Ohio River flowed into the Mississippi and you could get to New Orleans. And that was the cheapest way to get to New Orleans. There there were an extensive amount of agricultural trade between the Midwest and the Port of New Orleans. Um, in the 1850s, that started to change a little bit as the uh, railroad networks started to grow out of the east, and those were generally set up as, as east-west avenues. So uh, the northern states like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois were slowly starting to become more economically tied with states like Pennsylvania and New York. Uh, but at the outbreak of the Civil War, those economic and commercial ties were were bound largely with the South, uh, especially when it came to agricultural uh, shipments. Um, and primarily, the Mississippi River was the conduit uh, for that traffic. So the the closure of of the Mississippi River uh, in the early spring of 1861, as you know, Louisiana and Mississippi. Um, in Arkansas, they all seceded, um, essentially closed off the, the port of New Orleans from farmers in the Midwest. So all of a sudden they have a crop and uh, they don't have a way to get it to the market. As you can imagine, the economic problems for that could be pretty severe. Now, granted, um, uh, other, other trade avenues set up to take that place, but it, it generally led to, a, you know, um, some real economic problems for, for the farmers. And remember, the North is industrialized as it was. Uh, the Midwestern states that we're talking about, you know, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, 
uh, Iowa, Minnesota, were by and large agricultural in nature. Um, Ohio probably had the most developed industry of any of those states. Um, but I mean, when you look at a Civil War regiment, you look at the soldiers that enlisted, usually between half and three quarters of them are farmers. That tells you something about the, the societies that they came from. Right. And, and something I saw, too, that was fascinating is the impact on the north and then also how much it impacts the south because the fact that a lot of their food for their cotton plantations was coming from the north. So with that lack of trade coming down, um, plantation owners struggled to feed their enslaved peoples working on their plantations, sure. uh, which is going to be a big problem for the south as well. So this river is crucial and we're going to see as soon as secession happens and Fort Sumter's fired upon uh, even prior to Fort Sumter being fired upon we see this struggle for the river the the Mississippi starting to break out mm -hmm. uh, gun placements are being put on the Mississippi as early as January of 61 um, and so there's this this struggle uh, Davis Jefferson Davis uh, does sign a bill promising free trade, but it's not going to last too long. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the the importance of this can't be overstated enough for the listeners. Um, this is going to be really what much of the war in the West for till what probably about the fall of Vicksburg is going to be focused on, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a, a, a probably the most important federal war objective in the in the western theater in the first half of the war um in the second half of the war it becomes more um the federal armies driving into the deep south and, and to drive those states out of the war but i'd say through yeah through july of 1863 um the primary effort is to gain control of the mississippi river um and, and the Union Army makes actually fairly stunning progress in the, the um, not in the first year of the war, but in the second in 1862 uh, towards closing that. But we'll, we'll get to that a little later, I'm sure. And that progress is going to be crucial to keeping the Union war effort alive, too. I mean, if it wasn't for the Western theater, uh, I think, you know, Union supporters would have given up much faster because there wasn't a lot of a lot of good going on in the East for a long time. <laughs> So very important. So we see this struggle for uh, rivers, for railroads as well. You mentioned railroads. I mean, another crucial, crucial uh, economic avenue. Um, because if you're a farmer and, and you live far away from the Mississippi, uh, you might have access to the Mississippi, but without railroads to get your goods there in the first place, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. So we see the importance of these railroads and uh, of rivers. There's some other rivers we'll we'll take a look at. The Cumberland's another one. Um, the Tennessee River um, that that we'll take a look at. We also have quite a few states out west, um, like Kentucky, Missouri, uh, one in the east, Maryland. Right? We have these so-called border states. Mm -hmm. uh, if we want to talk a bit about those, maybe we can uh, start with Kentucky. You want to start with Kentucky? Sure. Yeah. And, and so, and so uh, listeners understand border states were, th these were s states where slavery was legal. Um, but perhaps in some, in some instances, it was starting to die out a little bit. Um, Kentucky is a, a, a great example. Um, 
one generally does not grow cotton in Kentucky. One generally does not grow sugar in Kentucky. Um, really, as, as Kentucky enters the, the, the Civil War, they really have more what we would call traditional agriculture, you know, the, the, the growing of wheat and corn and sorghum and things of that nature. Um, the types of agriculture where we're using a uh, um, you know, wholesale numbers of, of enslaved persons to do the labor just it didn't generally make a lot of sense. Um, where you saw the, the, the heftiest concentration of slavery was really in the deep south and along the Mississippi River. There's, there's this uh, incredible map put out um, of the slave population by state in 1860. And when you look at the border states, there are lots of portions of those states where slavery is virtually non-existent. Um, the, the northern fringes of Virginia, for example, which I, I guess you could consider a border state in some ways, uh, was almost devoid of slavery. Uh, Maryland itself, with the exception of, of areas around um, you know, Annapolis and Washington and whatnot, generally didn't have a lot of slavery either. In Kentucky, it was very, uh, very mixed. Uh, the mountainous regions in the eastern portion of the state, uh, slavery was almost non-existent. Uh, around the more populous cities like Louisville and Frankfurt, which, you know, the state capital, it was a bit more, a bit more prevalent. Um, uh, Missouri, uh, likewise, uh, th there was a few, a few counties in Missouri where there might have been uh, thirty percent of the population were slaves, but most of it was, was not. Uh, when you start moving into state, another, uh, I guess you consider Tennessee a bit of a, a border state. The eastern portion of the state had almost no slaves, and most of the slavery was concentrated in the, uh, you know, the, the middle part of the state around Nashville, and then around Memphis in the western part of the state, uh, more what you call, you know, the cotton regions. And when you move along the Mississippi River, uh, once you cross the border of Tennessee and you move along Mississippi, um, the majority of the populations in the counties along the, the Mississippi River in Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana were slaves. And that's where the big plantations were that grew sugar and cotton and whatnot. Um, it's, it's no accident that uh, these plantations were located close to the Mississippi River. Of course, they use that for transport to move their crop to New Orleans. Um, but that's also, you know, uh, uh, climate-wise, where um, these ten these crops tended to grow quite well. Um, you can also see in Louisiana, there's a, a, a large populations of slaves along the Red River, um, which was also another another big sugar-growing region. Um, at the outbreak of the Civil War, the real money was in sugar. I mean, there was lots of money being made in cotton. Cotton was still king, uh, but sugar, uh, sugar cane, uh, was was rapidly gaining ground. And Braxton Bragg, for example, we're going to talk quite a bit about him in this series. Uh, as the war begins, is a rather wealthy sugar planter in Louisiana. He's not growing cotton; he's growing sugar and uh, making about $30,000 a year doing it. Right, yeah. It, it's interesting how you mentioned, too, about the divide between eastern and western Tennessee, or Kentucky. Excuse me. We're, we'll we'll talk about Tennessee, too, in, in its time. Mm -hmm. uh, that'll have a big role to play. But 
Western Kentucky does see this much more pro-slavery stance because they're tied further, like you said, to the Deep South. Uh, it's, It's also interesting that Kentucky does issue proclamations of neutrality. Um, we see on the 16th, 20th, and 24th of May, the legislature passes some acts of neutrality. Um, so they're going to try to remain neutral. So they take this really weird position of almost almost three nations developing, right? I guess we could put it that way. We have the Union, the North, uh, the South, the Confederacy, and then these, you know, Kentucky trying to trying to remain neutral. Yeah. Um, and, and, and interesting, I think that was where uh, John Bell uh, who would run and you know essentially as a, a, a union candidate in uh, 1860 not very successfully but it's from Kentucky so they're, they're desperately trying to find a way to keep they, they you know the Kentuckians do not want their state to be a battleground clearly and they know that with their position they are so they adopt this idea of uh, of neutrality um, it, it's it's a reflection too of their 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 tie they're torn um economically they're tied more with the north but their hearts are with the south um so yeah they they adopt this course of neutrality uh and interestingly enough both sides respect it uh, at least along the margins for a period of time <laughs> um i mean up until september of 1861 no no military forces from either either side um, move into Kentucky. Of course, once the uh, Confederates move in uh, to Columbus, Kentucky, all bets are off, and the Union moves right in too. So, yeah, right. Uh, it's it's interesting when we see that seizure of the neutrality break down. I mean, Kentucky tries to remain neutral. Um, Lincoln and Davis are going to have something to say about that, though. Uh, Lincoln starts to authorize secret shipments of arms. So we see weapons going in. We see the Confederacy starting to authorize the recruitment of, uh, and we're going to see the the authorization of the recruitment of forces from Kentucky. Um, they'll send troops to both the North and the South. Um, but yeah, then, you know, Pillow authorizes this. He argues that they need to take Columbus, Kentucky. Um, mm-hmm. This is a strong point of defense. Um and one that will play a significant role early on with Belmont. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're going to, they're going to seize it. The, the rebels are going to move first. They're going to move into Kentucky. And once they do that, it gives Ulysses Grant his opportunity that he wants, right? He's yeah. like, perfect. Now I can make the move because I'm not going to be the aggressor. Um, so they're going to move in and take Paducah. Uh, and we're going to see, Kentucky really is important because that is the head of navigation for the Tennessee River. Right. And and we're going to see the state just kind of be divided up almost against its will at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. As much as they want to remain neutral, uh, they're not going to have much about it. I, I do want to mention for the listeners, uh, since since Grant's going to play such a big role uh, in our series here in the West, uh, I want to sketch him out a little bit for mm-hmm. our listeners who may not be too familiar. So he's born in Ohio. So just like us, he's a Buckeye um, in Point Pleasant. Uh, he's going to, uh, it just was his 200th uh, birthday anniversary last year. Mm-hmm. So uh, in April of 1822, he's born. They moved to Georgetown, Ohio. Uh, he gets a West Point appointment. 
kind of by chance, and he joins the West Point class of 1843. Uh, he gets the rank of Brigadier General of Volunteers when the Civil War breaks out. Uh, he's eventually appointed commander of District of Southeast Missouri. Um, and so he he tries to get, uh, he, he serves in the Mexican-American War. Um, he's mainly a logistics, uh, in charge of logistics there, but that's going to serve him very well. Uh, we'll talk quite a bit about logistics in this series, uh, how important it is to have supply lines and to make sure your supply lines are protected. Um, cause disaster, uh, Bedford Forest and some of these guys are going to, going to really, uh, drive him crazy with the logistical lines cutting them, but he's going to serve in the Mexican American war. He comes back bounces around a variety of posts in the army eventually resigns with the drinking allegations out west um yeah he, really it's kind of sad that in his life prior to this other than being in the army in marrying he married well you have to give him credit there um his his career outside of the army was was largely a, a litany of failure um, I think when the Civil War began, he was he was working as a clerk, was it in his father-in-law's uh, grocery grocery store in in Galena, Illinois. Um, yeah, he worked a few a few jobs. He I think he goes back to his own father as well. Uh, okay, yeah, Jesse. I think about that. He's a thirty-nine-year-old man with a wife and kids working as a, a clerk in a grocery store uh, with a West Point education. Uh, yeah, not. Yeah, had his life ended there, it would have been kind of a my God, where'd you go wrong, man? Yeah, Grant. Uh, he's going to try his hand at real estate and at a few different things. He's going to fail all of them, uh, all his different business ventures. He tries to farm. His father-in-law, uh, Colonel Dent, not a real colonel, but that was his title. The Kentucky uh, Colonel. Yeah, he marries into a slave-owning family, the Dents. Uh, he meets Julia Dent, his wife through his West Point roommate, Fred Dent, um, and uh, falls in love with her. Against the colonel's wishes, they do eventually get married. James Longstreet will be at their wedding. Um, so, we'll, so we'll see Longstreet again out West. Uh, and obviously he plays a big role in the East. Um, and he'll draw the mire of, of pro-Confederacy uh, fans after the war for his support of Grant and the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. But uh, so Longstreet's going to be there. But yeah, his his father-in-law gives him land, uh, which he tries to farm miserably. He calls it hard scrabble. Uh, if you the more you want to learn about Grant, if you want to really know about him, uh, Grant by Chernow is just an excellent, excellent one volume on his life. Um, I've always been kind of uh, partial to Brooks Simpson's uh, U.S. U.S. Grant Triumph Over Adversity. 1822 to 1865 basically you know covers his life uh you know prior to entering politics and uh you know, is a good book uh, i really like uh simpson's book as well simpson's book came out a number of years ago let me check it here 2000 oh my gosh i'm happy you brought that up brand new <laughs> i'm happy you brought that up because because i had uh dr simpson on uh gosh last year i think so listeners can go back and listen to that. We talked about some of the, some of what we'll cover in the series eventually too, uh, in the summer of '64. So yeah, he's he's excellent as well. Uh, I can, I'll link these books as well in the description, so uh, listeners 
can have this. Uh, he he marries into a slave owning family and he comes from an abolitionist home. Uh, so his father, Jesse Root Grant, is an ardent abolitionist. Uh, but Colonel Dent is a slave owner. Um, he's given slaves to work with on hard scrabble. Primarily Willie Jones is the most famous um, who Grant uh, owns for about a year, I believe, until he um, frees him. Uh, slavery never sits well with Grant, but he's not quite an abolitionist either. He actually says he's not an abolitionist. Um, so he has an interesting worldview on slavery that we'll we'll see change as we go throughout this out the throughout the war. Um, he'll see African American regiments serve alongside his white troops, and and he'll start to to change his mind. Uh, but Grant's an interesting figure, like you mentioned. He's really comes from a rough background and a lot of failure. Uh, but we're going to see him rise to some some pretty amazing heights. When the Civil War breaks out, he tries to offer his service. Uh, he writes a letter to Washington, which is never answered. And then he goes and visits McClellan personally in Cincinnati. And McClellan refuses to see him, um, which isn't surprising. Uh, yeah. given some of the other McClellan stories we get. My favorite McClellan, I know this is off topic because he's in the East, but my favorite McClellan story is when uh lincoln and was it seward i think go to visit him at his home and he sneaks in the back door and he tells his butler that he just wants to go to bed so he has them go downstairs and tell lincoln and seward he won't be seeing them that evening uh and they waited on him for hours so lincoln never did that again where he visited mcclellan at home he always made him come visit him uh but that's amazing to make the president of the united states wait for you uh, and then you just decide, I'm going to go to bed. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'm too tired to talk. I'll, we'll talk tomorrow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Uh, there. But yeah, he's going to ignore Grant as well. Um, and, and that's a little more understandable. I mean, given, you know, uh, the timing of that was April, May of 1861. Uh, you know, McClellan, I mean, since we are talking, you know, Western theater, the Western theater, uh, Western Virginia was a was a at the very outset of the war was where Ohio's focus certainly was uh, was on that border between what was then Virginia, not Western West Virginia as it is today, and uh, you know the Ohio River was you know a borderline, so there was a lot of uh, you know with Kentucky being neutral, uh, you know Ohio was concerned about you know would there be a Confederate invasion across the Ohio River, so Ohio's initial troops are sent. Uh, to western uh, Western Virginia, and you'll know, fight in some of the earliest battles of the war. Um, one of the things we haven't talked about, but I think we probably should, is the importance of Missouri uh, at the very outbreak of the Civil War, because you know, with Kentucky being neutral, uh, the kind of the the point of conflict. Uh, turns into Missouri and specifically the area around St. Louis. Um, and that kind of ties back to what we were discussing earlier with the Mississippi river, um, you know, being a, a major war objective for both sides. Um, you know, looking at the, the state of Illinois, for example, uh, the town of Cairo or Cairo, I've heard it said a couple of different ways. Uh, is at the uh, the the, the further most further most southern point of the state. It's at the uh, confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. 
Um, it's interesting. You look at, you know, period pictures of Cairo and there's, um, you know, this, the town's essentially defined by the rivers on either side of it. And there was concern very early in the war, as early as April of 1861, um, that if you controlled Cairo, you could control traffic on both rivers. And um, the first shots of the war in the Western theater are actually fired at Cairo. Uh, and this happens on April, oh, was it April 22nd? 18, no, no, it's a little later than that. April 24th, 1861. Um, the story goes, the, the state of Illinois had sent a, a number of companies of, of volunteer infantry uh, from the 8th and 10th Illinois regiments um, uh, to Cairo uh, to you know, basically guard the, guard the town. And they had set up some artillery batteries along the, uh, the levee. And on April 24th, there was a, 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 a steamboat called the Baltic. Uh, it was moving, um, it was on the Mississippi River, uh, sailing south. Uh, there had been rumors running afloat that uh, uh, the Confederacy was, was in, engaged in you know, trade for war goods and the Baltic was carrying some of these war goods. And um, the first shot of the war in the Western Theater was fired by one of these batteries that fired a shot across her bow. And uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, the, uh, the, the, the crew of the steamship Baltic didn't seem to take any notice, but kept going. <laughs> so the, the, the first shot of the war in the, in the West was uh, kind of a fizzle. Um, yeah. Nothing really came out of it, but that, that was the earliest, earliest shot where, you know, at this point, but there was, you know, clearly defined a you know, union and Confederate side. Um, and those type of engagements uh, continued for, you know, the, the next several days as, you know, the Union Army is trying to interdict uh, steamboat traffic on the Mississippi River. So we were discussing the first shot of the war in the West. So that the, the, it was actually fired by the first squad of Battery A, the first Illinois Light Artillery. Uh, the section was under command of 3rd Lieutenant John Botsford of Chicago. So an Illinoisan, uh, interestingly enough, with the Grant connection, uh, was the, the 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 first man in the Union Army to fire a fire a shot in the Western Theater, the first of many. Yeah, and Cairo is just—I mean—the importance of Cairo can't be overstated. Um, the Union are going to obviously have the town, like you said, it's the southernmost Union city. Uh, the Confederacy is going to think about taking Cairo. They—they uh, they don't. Um, and the Federals are going to use Cairo as a launching pad for for many other movements, um, especially this first movement, this drive to Belmont. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we'll see drives to Forts Henry and Donaldson and uh, further on down into the south along the, the Mississippi. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, Cairo is crucial to the Union war effort here. Um, Grant's going to be at Cairo um, and we're going to see. Uh, Union gunboats there, um, all kinds of things. And, and gunboats are another important uh, piece of the puzzle out west in the background here. Um, so we're going to see uh, ships and fleets underfoot. 
under Porter, right? Some guys we'll get yep. to later on. Um, and they're going to be very, very important to this war effort on the Mississippi, right? Because if you're going to battle for a river, you got to have some. Yeah, yeah, you got to uh, have you got to have uh, seaborne um, artillery of some type. Uh, yeah, so so, the, the 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 vessels that they develop in you know, really in the western for the western rivers, the, the the Brown River Navy, as they sometimes call it, uh, were remarkably inventive. Um, a typical designer, there was a couple different types of of uh, war vessels that were developed. There were the ironclads, which we're you know more familiar with. Uh, there were tin clads. Uh, there were uh, vessels also called timber clads that didn't have iron bulwarks, but had wooden bulwarks. Uh, but largely what they did, they would take a, you know, your typical, you know, Ohio River or Mississippi River steamer, uh, take all take off all the decorative work and, uh, you know, develop these case-mated uh, gunboats for, you know, usually, you know, anywhere from five to ten guns, uh, some of them of quite heavy caliber. And uh, they would build up, you know, real thick wooden walls. And then sometimes they would sheet it with railroad iron or iron sheet. And, uh, yeah, they, they were uh, certainly instruments of terror for the southern population. Um, uh, but it was, I won't say unheard of, almost unheard of. Um, I mean, iron vessels, uh, an innovation of the Civil War, really, with... Uh, uh, and the Western theaters and the, and, and, you know, the need to have mobile artillery uh, via these vessels was, you know, something that was very needed uh, when you're fighting along the Mississippi and Tennessee rivers. So. Yeah. We're going to see a guy by the name of Samuel Pook. He's going to design these shallow draft wooden gunboats with iron on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and in October of 61, James Eads is going to build seven of these uh, ironclads or, as they called them, Pook's Turtles, which I think is a pretty good name <laughs> for how they looked. Um, but yeah, he's they're going to start converting boats into ironclads, and these ironclads are going to be crucial. I mean, Fort Henry, a shots, not to spoil things for our listeners, but the infantry is not even going to have to fire a shot um, with the strength of these ironclads. Um, yeah. and, and I think command, like we mentioned, how strong the union talent is out West. Um, Andrew Hall Foote, uh, David Porter, right? Yep. Great commanders as well that are going to be in command of these fleets um, that are are created, these ironclad fleets. And, and they're going to work very well in conjunction with Grant, which is a big piece of the puzzle out there. Um, the cohesion between the Army and the Navy. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I'm not sure if um, they would have been as successful as they were if it if it wasn't for uh, how well they were able to to work together. Um, so we have the importance of the Mississippi. We have these railroads. We have Kentucky, which is trying to remain neutral, but we're going to see the rebels moving first. They're going to take Columbus. Uh, Grant's going to respond and take Paducah. Um, we have important towns like Cairo. Um, Louisville. Um, I mean, the Federal Army moves into Louisville um, very soon after the Confederates move into Columbus, Kentucky. 
uh, Louisville is uh, for, you know, as we discussed, you know, the Army of the Cumberland and, you know, the eventual drives uh, that would take the Federal Army to Chattanooga and Georgia and beyond. Louisville, Kentucky is the logistical base that powers all of those movements. Um, it's the it's a, a major port on the Ohio River, so it's easy to get to from you know, most of the Midwestern United States. Um, and there's you know an important railroad line, um, the Louisville and Nashville Railroad that runs between Louisville and Nashville. It's 186 miles. Uh, it's a single track railroad, but uh, it it is in, in the Western theater, at least in the initial year or year or two of the war, uh, the most crucial uh, avenue of transport that supports uh, Don Carlos Buell's army and then William Rosecrans's army. Uh, so the control of Louisville is is absolutely crucial. Um, now Louisville was, of course, you know, a divided city. There were um, you know, plenty of folks in Louisville that had their sympathies with the Confederacy, but Louisville was was by and large, I think you could call it a Union town. Uh, its commercial ties were firmly with the North. Um, you know, being a center of of uh, Union Army power throughout the war, uh, I don't think there was ever really any uh, real serious concerns that the army would be, or that the city would be taken by the Confederates, with the exception of you know, a few pretty tense days there in September of 1862 when Bragg's army's in the neighborhood. But, um, you know, Louisville is a, a, a extraordinarily important uh, logistical center for the federal army. Uh, lots of uh, lots of docks or, you know, the, the railroad yards, warehousing, um, you name it. Eventually, the, the federal government builds an arsenal uh, in Louisville. Um, so as I said, yeah, lots of uh, very, very important, of course, you know, a, a, uh, a center of power, um, in the region. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Buell. Um, he's someone we're going to talk about quite a bit, but it's interesting because before Buell is in command, uh, we have Sherman. So Sherman's place in command. Oh, I mean, we have one before him too. We have Robert Anderson, the uh, former uh, commander of Fort Sumter. Is right, yeah. Kentuckian, uh, is sent west to uh, you know, head up the Union war effort in Kentucky there, I think in September of 1861. And he has the job for, I, I'd say, a hot minute, maybe a month. Yeah, about September to October, right? Yep, and, and then, you know, turns it over to, you know, and and. Anderson, I, I think his nerves are still shot from Sumter. Uh, just the, the the pressures of trying to, you know, a, a guide the Union war effort in Kentucky with the, the real limited resources that were at hand, you know, as far as personnel and weapons and equipment. Uh, it was a little more than a little more than he can stand and you know turns it over to you know William Tecumseh Sherman. Uh, Sherman had already seen action in the Civil War. He had fought at First Bull Run. Right, yeah. And, and you know, he had, he and Grant certainly had a very different pre-war experience. Um, you know, Sherman is from, you know, born in 1820 in Lancaster, Ohio. Uh, his home is still there. If you want to go visit the Sherman house, you can actually see the, the crib that... <laughs> 
that young Tecumseh Sherman grew up, you know, uh, spent his first days in, which is still kind of an amazing artifact. Um, uh, it, it, but his father uh, passed away, I would think around the age of 10. He was, he was a relatively young man. And um, so he, he's raised by the Ewing family, you know, very close friends of, 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 his, of his father. And the Ewings are fairly politic, very politically prominent in the state of Ohio. So whereas Grant's upbringing, you know, his father was a, a tanner. Uh, Grant's upbringing was a little more hard scrabble. That's a good word for it, I think. Um, Sherman's was a bit more refined. Uh, of course, he attended West Point. I think he graduated in 18, was it 1840. It sounds about right. Yeah, yeah that sounds about right. Class of 1840. Um, and was serving during the Mexican War, but I do not believe he actually sees combat. I think he's in California. And uh, by and large misses the, the quote unquote, the glory of uh, being in the Mexican War. Uh, but, you know, he goes into the into business. And at one point, he's a banker in California. I don't know how well that, I don't think that turned out real well for him. Um, but the beginning of the Civil War, you know, you go January 1861, uh, he's a professor at the Louisiana Military School. Interestingly enough, recommended for the position by his old friend, Braxton Bragg. Uh, dun, dun, dun. His... <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. And, um, yeah, as Louisiana is consider, considering secession, uh, as Sherman I don't remember the exact quote, but essentially he says, you guys are, you're out of your mind. There's no way you're going to win. And uh, he hightails it back to Ohio, uh, gives up his position. I mean, he uh, had, it's interesting to think, had he had stayed in the South, he likely would have been given a, almost certainly been given a, a, a general's commission of some sort, uh, leading Louisiana troops. Imagine uh, Sherman and Braxton Bragg on a battlefield as comrades, um, you know, but, you know, Sherman's sympathies were, you know, clearly with, uh, uh, with his family up North and, you know, he, he does return to Ohio, but yeah, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, this dichotomy, neither, neither Grant or, I mean, I think Grant and Sherman are, are I don't think anyone would consider them overly successful uh, individuals at the beginning of the war. I think Sherman had certainly done better for himself than Grant, but I mean, you kind of look at, at both of them as um, nothing really extraordinary about either of them at this point. It, the Civil War would would transform their their characters, um, give them an opportunity for you know really demonstrate what they were made of, and, and it made both of them. Yeah, and right. At the beginning of the war, these guys are uh, probably not the ones that you would have picked <clears throat> to eventually you know, become a, a two-term president. And uh, I think the longest serving you know, amounts to the chief of staff of the Army of the United States. I mean, um, really extraordinary um, what they accomplished. Yeah, and we're going to see an interesting relationship develop between the two of them. Um, Sherman. As you mentioned, he gets command from Robert Anderson, but he ends up losing it and gives it to Don Carlos Buell because he says he needs 200,000 men um, yeah. to defend the state. Uh, yeah, and then the crazy. 
Yeah, they call him crazy, right? And uh, and he has what amounts to a, a, a mental breakdown. Um, I think at one point he's suicidal. Uh, he returns home to uh, you know to Lancaster, where you know his wife, um, <clears throat> wife and family uh, help him put the pieces back together. But yeah, I mean, when you look, I think he left in it was either November or December of '61. One of the pretty early on. Um, at that point, the Union Army had they had you know maybe twenty thousand or so troops in the in the uh, Louisville area. They had been starting to move south along the Louisville Nashville Railroad. Uh, you know, but that the Army at this point, I mean, these are these are all green troops. Um, there aren't there aren't any veterans, so to speak. Of so the Army, as it moves into Kentucky, is more concerned with basic drill and teaching the men how to be soldiers rather than, okay, now we're in the army. Let's go out and chase the Confederates. I mean, these guys have to learn how to be soldiers first, you know, the, the endless hours on the, uh, on, on the field uh, doing, you know, company drill, battalion drill, um, you know, the manual of arms, you know, you know how do you properly hold your rifle? How do you properly properly load your rifle? You know, loading in nine times. Uh, men had to be taught all that, and you know how to live, how to live in the field. I mean, most of these uh, men had come from uh, life as farmers and whatnot, but um, you know, army camp life had its had its own kind of routines and, and challenges to overcome. Uh, a lot of these men had not lived around other men before, so disease spread rapidly and uh, it did a lot of decimation within the ranks. I mean, so they, all this is going on at the same time that, you know, the, the administration is expecting things to happen in the West. So, you know, uh, Sherman uh, felt these pressures, and I think he clearly foresaw uh, maybe earlier than anyone else, what it was going to take to suppress the rebellion in the West. I mean, he had lived in the West. He had lived in Louisiana for a number of years. The, the, these, the, the enemy were people that he knew intimately. And he knew how serious they were about their cause. And he had a good sense of what it was going to take uh, to break the rebellion. And when he started um, you know, calling for 200,000 men, uh, the, the press got, if the memory serves, the, the, the information was somehow leaked to the press and they blew it all out of proportion and really made Sherman look something like a fool and called him such in the press. And that just, it was more than at that point, his, uh, than he could take and, uh, really took a really bad turn there for a while. Um, in fact, it was. Sherman was right. <laughs> we didn't need 200,000 troops to suppress the war in the West. We needed like half a million. Right. Um, so he wasn't, um, he, he, but yeah, we, we weren't going to win the war with 20,000 troops. I mean, that, they, that was abundantly clear to him, but I think too, I mean, he was, he was a, a, a very, very intelligent individual and a, a, a masterful, um, uh, Masterful when it came to the science of army logistics, I, I um, he understood probably better than than any of his contemporaries at this point in the war 
the distances involved, the you know the the limitations of the you know the Southern Railroad and road network and the rivers and you know what what are we going to need to do to actually suppress this rebellion? It was going to be a uh, a very tough challenge, and it was going to take a lot of troops to get it done. And frankly, the 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 North did not want to hear that in the fall of 1861. They, the, the, there was this popular perception that, you know, we'll send the boys down there, they'll have a big fight or two, and that'll be the end of it. I don't think anyone, very few people, imagined that this war would take four years and 600,000 lives to uh, settle right. uh, on both sides. I mean, Shiloh is still, you know, six months away. Um, the, the country started getting educated, something powerful, uh, around the time of the Battle of Shiloh. But prior to that, it was, you know, men were rushing to arms. They wanted to get in the army before the war was over. And yeah. Two, it, two years later, you had to use bayonets to drive them into the ranks. Right. And, and we're going to see uh, Sherman and Grant really developing a, a big relationship. And uh, there's that famous quote, um, I stood by him when he was crazy and he stood, or I stood by when he was drunk and he stood by me when I was crazy. Right. <laughs> like that. And they're going to have an interesting relationship develop one that's going to um, kind of like a Jackson and Lee esque relationship, <laughs> maybe not quite to that level, but oh, they, they're, respective strengths complemented their respective weaknesses right um, a, a, a an incredible when i look you know think to other other really incredible pairings in the western theater uh rosecrans and thomas um uh, i almost call it a beautiful command partnership between the two of them um you know sherman and grant certainly function very well together um I struggle. I'm not so so well versed on the Eastern theater, but it seems like most of the Eastern generals didn't get along very well. So yeah, right. Getting along is just something we did out west. But um, yeah, yeah. I mean th that partnership um, is crucial for the future success of the army uh, in this theater. Right. So well, we have Grant and Sherman. Um... Some, you know, uh, Rosecrans, you mentioned George Thomas, um, mm -hmm. some of our union uh, characters. Oh, that we... uh, yeah, there's one more guy we got to mention. And I know nobody likes to talk about him, but at this point in the war, he's pretty important. Uh, John Fremont. Oh, yes. The, the Pathfinder. The Pathfinder. Uh, so John Charles Fremont uh, had run for the presidency of the United States in 1856. He was the first candidate of the Republican Party. Uh, he obviously, didn't, <laughs> he didn't win, uh, <laughs> but he had a lot of political clout. Um, and as the war began, he's appointed general um, and he's in and he's assigned to command in Missouri. Now, we, we, we kind of skipped over Nathaniel Lyon and whatnot, but I think we're more focused on Kentucky and things in that area. It, it's worth mentioning that, you know, they're they're you, a lot of Union Army focus in 1861 was in gaining control of Missouri. And John Fremont was was assigned to command in Missouri to do that. Um, <laughs> very much an interesting character. Um, Phil Sheridan, interestingly, is 
kind of introduced to the Western theater, I guess you could say courtesy of General Fremont in, in a roundabout way. Uh, Fremont landed himself in some trouble uh, in the fall of 1861 when he, has, he, he issued what amounts to an emancipation proclamation from Missouri. Right. Um, clearly was not something Mr. Lincoln was ready for uh, quite yet, you know, given the very delicate balancing act of trying to keep this, this slaveholding border state in the union, uh, you know, that, that uh, Fremont's uh, directive is quickly uh, negated and Fremont's kicked out of command. And uh, I, I'm not sure who the genius was that decided to assign Henry Wager Halleck to command but that's who takes over from Fremont. So um, you go from uh, uh, Fremont, whose whose war record is is decidedly poor, uh, to Henry Wager Halleck, who, while he is a a brilliant uh, intellectual mind, uh, I I could think of few generals in the Civil War I would least like to serve under than Henry Wager Halleck. Old brains, right? old, bra- old brains. Uh, now, interestingly, he gets along reasonably well with Sherman, very poorly with Grant. Um, but more to come on that. Yeah, we, we got to get we got to get Halleck in here just because um, he is the overall uh, Western theater commander, uh, at least of the forces in the western part of Kentucky. Now, Buell has an independent command. And there's there is uh, politicking and maneuvering between Buell and Halleck because Halleck wants overall command of the West, as does uh, Buell. And at that time, McClellan was the overall commanding uh, general of the army, which included the West. He he had command. He had direct command authority in the Western theater. Uh, which he then delegated a portion of it to Buell and a portion of it to Halleck. Well, Halleck wanted all of the Western theater. He was very ambitious. Uh, Buell, I don't think, was quite as overt, but, you know, he was just as interested, too. So that kind of sets up an interesting dynamic uh, in these early days of the Civil War in the West, where you have two um, major generals kind of after the, they really want the same job. Um, it seems like they spend more time working on getting this new job than doing the job they already have, but that's. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, so we have Fremont in command. Um, and then, yeah, like you mentioned, he's replaced by Halleck. Um, he writes a textbook, correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, on war and tactics. Um, so a New York times bestseller, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna, He's I, I feel like he's almost envious because he does I now this is speculation, but it seems to me that he doesn't want to be a desk general, but that's sort of what he amounts to be. Uh, he's that, that really that, that that ends up being his true purpose, right? Is he is far better suited to deal with we'll call it the morass of politics in Washington than he is with dealing with a an army in the field. That's just it, you know, his particular skill set. Yeah, right. Uh, and it's interesting yeah. because as much as him and Grant butt heads, uh, Grant still sort of respects Halleck to an extent. Um, 
And he learns to work with him uh, when he comes east as well, uh, which is one of Grant and Lincoln. I mean, they're so skilled in working with their their foes, right? Uh, yeah. At one point has that. Um, can't remember his name at the moment, but someone sent east to, to basically spy on Grant and make sure he's not drinking. And instead of um, instead of kind of isolating him, he brings him in to his staff and into his confidence and ends up winning him over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for someone who's who's shy and quiet and kind of reserved as Grant was, uh, he knew uh, he knew how to command. He really did every every aspect. Um, but those are some of our big players on the the northern side for for our Federals. Uh, the biggest character we're going to meet. Well, I shouldn't say biggest character. I'll start, I'll, I'll reserve that title for Braxton Bragg. But the main <laughs> character at this time we're going to meet is uh, Albert Sidney Johnston. So he's going to be placed on September 10th in charge of the Confederate Department Number no. 2, um, basically from the Appalachian Mountains to Indian Territory. Um, he's got a 48,000... A lot mile, of territory. A lot of territory. He has a 400-mile front he's got to focus on. Um, so Albert... How many troops does he have? He had about close to 50,000, uh, a little under, like 48,000. Um, so he's going to focus on strongholds, Coverland Gap, Bowling Green, Henry Donaldson, Columbus. But Albert City Johnston, uh, in the words of Jefferson Davis, if he's not a soldier, we don't have one. He was mm-hmm. uh, of great fame. He served in three different armies, the Texan Army, the United States Army, and then the Confederate Army. Uh, he had a 34-year military career fighting in the Black Hawk War, uh, the Texas War of Independence, the Mexican-American War, the Utah War, the American Civil War. Uh, Johnston is a going to be the highest ranking general killed during the war. Spoiler alert. But uh, he's he's very important to the Confederate war effort out west. Correct. Yes. Yeah. At this point in the war, um, largely considered the South's uh, premier field general. Uh, now realize he does not arrive um, in theater and as you said, really until September of 1861. Uh, reason being is at the beginning of the war, he was stationed all the way out west in California. And uh, he once he heard of the secession uh, of, his, of his home states uh, um, being Texas, he uh, he he, re- he turned in his resignation to the War Department. Um, and then it took quite some time for him to travel back east. I mean, you know, th- this is before the Intercontinental Railroad. Um, and, you know, he has to you know, go on this long trek from California to, to Texas and um, you know, to get all the way back east to Virginia where, he, you know, he gets his, um, you know, his commission and his sent. Um you know, to take command of this, the, the department number two. I mean, so there's only two departments, department number one's the Eastern theater and department number two covers everything from the Appalachian mountains to what today is Oklahoma. So if one can, you know, look at a map and imagine that one man with 48,000 men is tasked with holding this incredibly vast territory. I mean, it was clearly not enough uh, men to, defend what he was tasked with defending. Um, I think he eventually splits his command 
Uh, there's, you know, what, what develops the Trans-Mississippi Department, which I don't think we're going to cover too much in this series. That's a little out of our purview, but understand that it is there. Um, and Johnston focuses his efforts more on um, defending, uh, the, holding this line across the state of Kentucky, which is um, a, a, a little easier job when you think about it. I mean, um, but you still have 40,000-ish men to hold what amounts to a 200-mile line across the state of Kentucky. And he does it in really, there's three, like three primary concentrations. There's an army under Felix Zollicoffer, which takes position on the, on the eastern side. And we'll eventually have a battle called Mill Springs. Uh, the main portion of the army he keeps around Bowling Green, Kentucky, under his direct command. Uh, and then there's Lionitis Polk, and another character, as you say, another character that we're going to talk a bit about in the <laughs> series, uh, Lionitis Polk, who has command of... Uh, uh, the detachment up at Columbus, Kentucky. Yeah, well, uh, Bragg's another one. We mentioned Bragg. We're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about Braxton Bragg, and, and yeah. um, he's another Mexican. Well, he's another uh, Mexican War veteran, but also West Point graduate. Yeah. Um, so we're gonna see a, a, a hero of the a widely acclaimed hero of the Mexican War. Uh, a little more grape, Captain Bragg was a, a very well known. Um, <laughs> national slogan, I guess you could say. Um, I think that was at the Battle of Buena Vista in 1847, where his battery um, held off a Mexican counterattack almost single-handedly. And, you know, Braxton Bragg was a, he was no slouch when it came to artillery. He was a, a very skilled uh, artillerist, a, a rather a brute when it came to uh, discipline. Um, but a, a very, very talented, very skilled artillerist and, and, and brave almost to a fault. I mean, uh, it took a lot of guts and courage to do what he did at Buena Vista. So, you know, he, he was, I think he earned three brevets for bravery during the uh, Mexican War. Uh, pretty extraordinary. Um, what's interesting about Bragg is it was probably a good thing the Mexican war occurred when it did. He was only a first Lieutenant. He was a graduate of the class of 1837, but by 1845, his track record of interpersonal relations was just absolutely appalling. <laughs> the, the man had managed to make enemies out of his regimental commander, the adjutant general of the United States, the commanding general of the United States and the secretary of war as a first Lieutenant. <laughs> I, I think the only person that, he takes, got some, along. that takes some stones. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think the only person Bragg really ever got along with was his wife. I don't. Yes. Think yeah, and he had a wonderful marriage. Yeah. I, and one uh, had to be a saint. He's he's interesting. He has a lot of health problems. Bragg, yep. if, if listeners can't tell, uh, Bragg is my favorite Confederate general to study. One of my favorite, like maybe top two favorite people besides Grant to study. I just find him fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, he suffered from a lot of health problems. Um, he was a very grouchy man, I guess is the best way. Yeah. To he, was yeah. Not, yeah. he was not a very happy person to be around. Um, he has quite a reputation as probably one of, if not the worst Confederate generals, as people remember him. Mm -hmm. um, but as we'll, we'll talk about that throughout the series, uh, if yeah. that's actually the case. Um, or kind of, kind of how Bragg, um, 
how he's remembered and if he got a fair treatment throughout history or not, which was something I want to make sure we get, we get throughout the series. Cause Greg is a fascinating character. So probably fair to see since I think we're probably, we got to wrap up here in a few minutes. Um, let's, let's kind of get the war to, let's say December, 1861. Then the next episode, we can kind of take it in from there. Um, the kind of, since we brought up Braxton Bragg, where is Braxton Bragg during this time? Well, Braxton Bragg actually has command uh, of several thousand troops down on the Gulf Coast between Mobile and Pensacola, Florida. Uh, so he's in the Western Theater, but he's far away from like the main uh, the main focus of our discussion, which is you know at this point Kentucky. Uh, so he's several hundred miles away, you know, busily fending off the, the, the Union Navy from taking the forts at Pensacola. Um, but he, he will come into this story sooner than later. Um, but, you know, the key point being that, you know, as, as we move into uh, the last month of 1861, there have been a couple of pretty minor engagements in Kentucky um, there was one at Camp Wildcat, which I think was October, I want to say October 17th or October 22nd. My, my memory gets fuzzy as I get older here. Let me pull this up. October 21st. So I was, I was in the ballpark, uh, pretty small engagement. Um, once again, Felix Olicoffer, who was a, a, a going to be an important uh, early Confederate general from Nashville, had about 5,400 men moved up uh, uh, along the Wilderness Road uh, into this kind of hilly and almost mountainous region of Kentucky and had fought with about 7,000 Union troops under Alvin Sheff. Um, it is a, a, a Union victory. Uh, a very minor one. I, I mean, there might have been 50 to 100 casualties on both sides. I mean, we don't we even only call it a skirmish later. Um, but it was, you know, a, a, one of the first significant engagements in Kentucky. Um, what's interesting is if you go to the, the, the uh, Wildcat battlefield, it has been preserved. And there's a place there called Hoosier's Knob. And one of the coolest things, it's a bit of a hike to get up there. And oh, by the way, of course, I didn't know this when I went, but apparently there's a lot of bears in the area. So if you're going to go, don't go by yourself. <laughs> would have been good to know at 7 a.m. the morning that I went. But um, when you get to the top of Hoosier's Knob, the um, breastworks that the men built during the battle are still very plainly evident. Uh, they, they ask that you don't walk in them or walk through them, but I mean, you can clearly see them. It is very cool. Uh, and the view up there is spectacular. And that, what's nice about Wildcat, it's right off I-75. So it's pretty easy to get to. Um, Just got to look out for the bears. <laughs> okay. <laughs> go, go with somebody and take a stick or, or, <laughs> or something heavier. But yeah, it, it's a really, it's, it's, it's a neat I uh, need uh, the Hoosiers knob. It's it's probably about a twenty minute hike to get up to the top of Hoosiers knob. It's a bit of a climb, but um, just to see those earthworks, I mean, really it looks like it's a ditch. It's a ditch that goes around the the, the rim of the knob, but um, very cool. Um, certainly something the listeners should, uh, if they're in the area, should check that out. I think it's oh maybe an hour or so south of Richmond, Kentucky, if if that far. Yeah, well, I think that sets us up pretty good. Uh, 
Do we want to save Belmont since we only got a few minutes before? Yeah, we yeah. Know. Let's let's touch on Ivy Mountain real quick because it, it, Ivy Mountain is another another one of those little battles that uh, um, it was one of the important in early engagement. It was fought the day before Belmont, which is perfect. And that'll set us up for Belmont to start off the next one. Um, and this is uh, an engagement fought more in the eastern region of Kentucky. Um, and in this case, what we're what we have is about 3,600 Federals under William Bull Nelson, an important Western theater general here, uh, against a couple hundred recruits of the 5th Kentucky. Uh, they fought near Ivo, Kentucky, which is a very small little town on U.S. 23. Um, essentially, the Union Army was marching. They rounded a bend, and the Confederates ambushed them, and there was a, a, a pretty nasty little scrap for you know maybe an hour. And uh, the Confederates ended up uh, ended up uh, departing the field, but you know, they 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 you know kind of gave the Union Army a, a little bloody rap on the nose. So, um, you know, as as the as we approach the latter portion of, of 1861, the armies are starting to come out of their training camps and they're starting to take kind of these first swipes at each other. You know, places like Wildcat and uh, Ivy Mountain, uh, they're gonna have a real scrap coming up at uh, uh, Belmont um, in November. We'll save yeah. that for the next discussion. We'll see Grant's first action there, really. So, yeah. all right, well, I think that sets us up well. Um, that introduces us to some of the major characters in the West and tells us some of the geographical um, points that they're going to struggle over um, and then sets up some of our border states. So, yeah, we'll pick up with Belmont and probably Henry and Donaldson next time. So we'll see you guys then. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Civil War Center podcast. Please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review as it helps the podcast grow. Also, please share with a friend, and don't forget to donate to the Civil War Center because there are costs incurred with running the podcast. And we hope to see you next time at the Civil War Center.